Part Three, Chapter Six of *The Uttermost Star*. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. *The Uttermost Star* and other gleams of fancy by Frank W. Borum. Part Three, Chapter Six: Rifts of Blue. We don't see the stars in the daytime; they are there at noon just as much as at night but the dazzling splendor of the sun shames them into invisibility. Something very similar occurs in the touching narrative of the sorrow at Bethany. It's the only story of a personal bereavement, told with vivid domestic detail, that the New Testament gives us. It closes, sensationally, with the raising of Lazarus. Sometimes I wish that it didn't. That stupendous miracle has engrossed all our attention to the detriment of several exquisitely beautiful things that occur elsewhere in the story. The sun has blotted out the stars. I'm going to forget for a few minutes the dramatic close of the story. I'm going to read it again, just as I would read any other record of domestic grief. And reading it thus, I feel like one who, looking upward, gazes upon a sky overspread with gray and gloomy clouds, yet who sees, here and there, the most glorious rifts of blue. Those rifts of blue are openings into immensity, peeps into infinity, windows that open upon the everlasting. Let me point to one or two. In the course of his journey to the stricken home, Jesus said a very striking thing. Our friend Lazarus sleepeth. Each word deserves to be examined under a microscope. To begin with, is it not intensely suggestive that with Jesus, Lazarus is still Lazarus? He speaks of him still by the fond familiar name, and by that name, in the thrilling climax, again addresses him. Lazarus, come forth. And to that name, Lazarus responds. Where wert thou, brother, those four days? There lives no record of reply, which telling what it is to die had surely added praise to praise. We do not know, but wherever he was, he was still Lazarus. Death had done nothing to impair his own identity. He was still Lazarus in the thought of Jesus. He was still Lazarus in his own consciousness. By the old name Jesus called him. To the old name he answered. The grave robbed him of nothing that was really worth preserving. Lazarus is still Lazarus. The old identity is unimpaired. Lazarus is still our friend, Lazarus. The sweet old relationships are undisturbed. And best of all, Lazarus is still ours, our friend Lazarus. If that means anything... It means that those whom we have loved long since, and lost a while, are still our own. Our friend sleepeth. God does not toy with our holiest affections, giving us one day those whom he would have us love, and the next day taking them from us. Our own are still our own forever. Lazarus, though dead, is still our Lazarus. The same idea occurs in the Old Testament. In the first chapter of the book of Job, which Carlyle considered the greatest drama ever written, we are told how Job, by one fell stroke of dire calamity, lost all that he had. And then, in the last chapter, we are told that the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. And in each case there is an inventory. Job lost 17,000 sheep. At the end he possesses 14,000, twice as many. He lost 3,000 camels. 6,000 are, at last, given him, twice as many. He loses 500 yoke of oxen. In the last chapter he owns a thousand, twice as many. He loses seven sons and three daughters. In the last chapter 
seven sons and three daughters are born to him. Why are the numbers of sheep, camels, and oxen doubled, whilst the number of sons and of daughters remains the same? And, since the number of sons and of daughters remains the same, how can it be said that he had twice as many as before? The reply is obvious. He had lost his sheep and camels and oxen forever. His sons and daughters who had passed from his sight, together with the sons and daughters around his knees, gave him twice as many as he had before. It means that Lazarus is still our Lazarus. That is Wordsworth's idea in We Are Seven. Sisters and brothers, little maid, how many may you be? How many? Seven in all, she said, and wondering, looked at me. And where are they, I pray you tell? She answered, Seven are we, and two of us at Conway dwell, and two are gone to sea. Two of us in the churchyard lie, my sister and my brother, and in the churchyard cottage I dwell near them with my mother. It appeared to her questioner that there was matter here for subtraction, but the curly-headed little maiden would not hear of it. How many are you then, said I, if they two are in heaven? Quick was the little maid's reply, Oh, master, we are seven. But they are dead, those two are dead, their spirits are in heaven. Twas throwing words away, for still the little maid would have her will, and said, Nay, we are seven. She clung to her conviction that Lazarus is still our Lazarus, and she had the divinest authority for her simple faith. Or turning our faces in a fresh direction, let us peer through another rift in this leaden sky, into the clear heavens beyond. Is it not very singular that on his arrival at the home in Bethany, his home at Bethany, he wept? In our bereavements we attempt to stifle sorrow by the thought of their happiness whom we have lost. Jesus knew intimately the perfect felicity of Lazarus, and yet he wept. He knew, too, that in an hour the joy of Mary and of Martha would be complete, and yet he wept. Do these tears need explanation? It is, at any rate, a comfort that he wept. By weeping, he at least assured us that there is nothing faithless, nothing wicked in our tears, and it would be like him to sympathize with us in our sorrow, however needless that sorrow might be. Sorrow is sorrow, even though there be no sufficient cause for grief, and just because the anguish was there, he shared its bitterness. There is a lovely letter written by Mrs. Carlyle to that rugged old husband of hers, in the course of which she tells him how, during a recent illness, she was greatly comforted by her maid. The girl only came into the room and rubbed her cheek against her mistress's, but it strangely soothed her. And sometimes, adds Mrs. Carlyle, I could tell that her cheek was wet, and her tears meant much to me. I like to think of poor Jane Carlyle's letter when I read the story of those tears at Bethany. And was there not an element of pity in them? Pity for the sisters, since they were unable to see all that he had seen, the glory upon which, with unveiled face, Lazarus was gazing, and pity for Lazarus, too. He himself knew what it was to leave that brighter world for this less radiant one, and he felt for Lazarus in having to make the same great sacrifice. Professor David Smith, in writing on the epistles of Isidore, the Greek scholar and saint, quotes from a letter which Isidore wrote to Theodosius the Presbyter on this very matter. Isidore, says the professor, was a gentle and gracious soul who had quitted the city of Alexandria and sought retirement that he might give himself to devotion and study. He had no aptitude for ecclesiastical activities and contentions, and his name never appears in the bitter and futile controversies which mark the church history of that period. Yet he exercised in his seclusion a rare ministry of rich and far-reaching beneficence. He was a scholar, and he was gifted with an understanding heart and a sympathetic spirit. Troubled folk turned to him in their perplexities, and they found in him a wise counselor. 
He wrote letters near and far, and over two thousand of these have survived. In one, he deals with this question as to why our Lord wept by the grave of Lazarus. Why, he asks, did Jesus weep for Lazarus, knowing that he would raise him from the dead? Isidore answers his own question. It was precisely on that account, he says, that Jesus wept. Lazarus had entered into his felicity, and Jesus wept at having to recall him. The miracle was necessary in order to convince the unbelieving Jews of his divine title, but in his eyes, knowing as he did the eternal realities, it was a cruel necessity. The storm-tossed mariner had reached the haven, and he must call him back to the billows. The warrior had won his crown, and he must call him back to the conflict. And therefore he wept, not because Lazarus had passed into the joy unspeakable, but because he must return to this poor, troubled life. From any point of view, then, those silent tears are wondrously and divinely significant. Just one more rift in those gray skies. We have walked with him along the Bethany Road. We have sat with him in the house of sorrow. Let us, without waiting to witness the actual miracle, go with him to the tomb. And he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Why with a loud voice, since Lazarus lay at his feet? Old Matthew Henry, with rare insight, declares that he cried with a loud voice to show that he was not addressing the dead body at all. Had he spoken softly, it might have been supposed that the living soul and the dead body were inextricably intermingled. He looked away from the dead body and cried with a loud voice that it might be seen that he was addressing a living soul at a distance and not a dead man close at hand. And why was it needful to call upon Lazarus by name? There were no others lying in that grave. Would it not have been sufficient had he simply cried, Come forth? He singles out Lazarus by name, says Augustine, finally, lest all the hosts of the dead should hear his voice and come forth together. The time had not yet come for that. Some day he will say, Come forth, and the dead will rise from land and sea at his sublime behest. But on that day at Bethany he only wanted one. He named his man, and, from out the world invisible, Lazarus instantly came at his call. Peering through these rifts of blue, I clearly see two things. I see that wherever those old companions are, whom I have loved long since, and lost a while, they are within his care, and at his call. At any moment he has but to speak their names, and they instantly rise to greet him. And the other thing is this. He calls Lazarus, and Lazarus alone. Why only Lazarus? If it is in his power to summon our dear ones from their graves, and restore them to their old familiar places, why does he not do it? The fact that he calls Lazarus, and Lazarus alone, proves indisputably that the others are better where they are. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. End of Part 3, Chapter 6 Recording by Olivia